Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today because we get to talk about a really interesting, really innovative book titled Sense of China, A Modern History of Smell, published by Cambridge University Press in 2023. The book is written by our guest today, Dr. Xuele Huang, who has documented an array of smells, um, a way many different kinds of life and what they were like at different periods, helping us understand China through a very different um, and unique perspective. So this is a fun book, a fascinating book. Shrele, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast to tell us about it. Thank you, Miranda, and thank you for having me. It's my great pleasure to introduce my book. Well, we're very glad to have you. And could I ask you to start off, please, before we get into the book, introduce yourself and explain why you decided to write this book. Sure. But I found it's actually a difficult question. Who am (laughs) I? (laughs) I'll try my best. Um, I was born and grew up in China, and uh, I studied in China in Fudan and Beida universities, and then I went to Germany, Heidelberg University, for a PhD. Afterwards, I, I, I continued my around-the-world travel, and I did a postdoc in Taiwan, and also held some short-term you know, research positions in France and in Austria. Then eventually I came to Scotland uh, to join the University of Edinburgh, so that's where I am now. Um, in terms of why I decided to write this book, actually, I initially I studied media and film in university, and my PhD dissertation is about early Chinese film history, so nothing to do with smell. But uh, after finishing my first book on film, and uh, when I was pondering what to do next, I came across French historian Alain Corbin's book, you know, it's a famous book called uh, The Fall and the Fragrant. It's the seminal book in smell studies, and I was fascinated by the stories about French olfactory revolution in the 18th and the 19th century. So this was a, a kind of aha moment, because I just felt like uh, I can picture, or rather I can smell a book about Chinese smells. That was how I started. Hmm. And then I, yeah, I think I was quite fortunate because somehow I managed to receive uh, some grants at the very beginning of this project, a fellowship from the Humboldt Foundation from Germany and some others. So these were really, really huge boost to my confidence in embarking on this quite unusual project. Yeah. Hmm. What a great, yeah, confidence boost, as you said, um, because this is an unusual book. In fact, you call it an eccentric history. Can you tell us why you use that term? Yeah, you know, a history book telling stories not about kings and queens, not even about wars, revolutions, and even common people, but a rather about uh, thinking like a uh, thinking ditches, bodily odors, and uh, evil smelling class 
animes. It has to be an eccentric history book, isn't it? So especially when I started this project, there wasn't much research on smell in the humanities. So I was excited by my vision of writing something eccentric. But now, you know, smell has enjoy, enjoyed a significant revival in academia and uh, popular discourse, especially since the COVID pandemic. So I suppose my stories are not so eccentric uh, today anymore, which which is great news. Hmm. Great news, um, but also quite a lot of fun. So I'm, I'm glad that you use that title. I think it gives a good sense of um, kind of the book and how things are approached. Because as you mentioned, stinking ditches, right? The book starts with literally a rose garden in a cesspool. Why yeah. do you start there? Yeah, this is a long story. So years ago, I bought a second handbook from the famous you know, Shakespeare and Company bookstore in Paris on the left bank of I have to say. Now, the book is a family memoir written by a Canadian missionary, uh, missionary's son who grew up in China. And then this book had been sleeping on my shelf until one day I opened it coincidentally and found this fascinating cesspool rose garden story, which I thought this was perfect for the opening of my smell book. So that's another aha moment. Then basically the story is about this Canadian um, missionary couple who lived in China for four decades in the first half of the 20th century. And uh, in the small town where they lived, there was a stinking cesspool where all the towns of sewage and waste were drained, as you can imagine how stinking it was. Then in order to bring some beauty and fragrance to the site, they grew Irish roses around the pool, making it a, a unique cesspool rose garden. Imagine the smell in the air. Uh, this odor mix of stench and fragrance is so interesting, both material and allegorical senses. So on the one hand, the Irish roses can certainly be considered as something like a metaphor of the Western civilizing mission in that particular context of high colonialism and uh, imperialism. And uh, this particular olfactory sensitivity of the missionary couple actually can be traced back to the Western olfactory revolution, which she started exactly on the riverbanks of the same, you know, as Alan Corbin's book told us. That's why I found, you know, I, I found this book exactly on that spot, so which makes this story really meaningful. And But then, on the other hand, I think we should also consider the role of the local cesspool, because it provides the fertilizer for the for the roses to thrive, right? And uh, then its smell also constantly poses challenges to the civilizing mission of perfuming China. So I think this metaphor allows me to theorize the neither foul nor fragrant odor as uh, a stranger. This is a concept I borrowed from the sociologist Zygmunt Bauman, or Derrida for that matter, you know, I think people. You're all familiar with uh, with this kind of um, in the between in between kind of uh, thing that Derrida is so fascinated with. Mm. Um, so the stranger is neither nor is uh, undecidable is uh, something in between. We all know many modern social political problems all stem from an uneasy relationship with strangers. 
and also this impulse to convert unfamiliar strangers into something familiar, something easy to classify, either friends or enemies. So then, going back to the narrative of olfactory modernity, as we know well, a key mission was about deodorizing. Our environment, perfuming our bourgeois bodies, or about、uh, redefining the fragrant and the fall. So this binary structure of smell is also harnessed, harnessed to internalize all these discriminations about race, about class, about gender. We are all very familiar with this kind of discourse. So basically, there is no room for the stranger. That's the problem. So I think the cesspool rose garden just brilliantly provokes us to rethink smell, its stranger status. And in the twenty first century, now the context of decolonization, it's really time to unsettle old binaries between fall fragrance and or any kinds of this kind of entrenched dualism. So that's why the cesspool rose garden. I like it. <laughs> Yeah, it brings up so many things that the book、yeah. then goes on to explore. So thank you for taking us through that.、Um, as we continue through the book, can you introduce us to the four principles that constitute smell in your research? Yeah,、uh, one of the things I enjoyed a lot when doing this research on smell is reading. Science books about smell. <laughs> you know, as a, as a, as a historian, we rarely you know read that kind of book for me in the past. But I really enjoyed enjoyed reading those books because it's fascinating to learn how our body and brain coordinate to make sense of the world. So the four、uh, what I call grammatical principles of the language of smell are mainly from the insights I gained from this literature. Uh, so the first principle is our odor perception is ambiguous and、uh, individualized. This sounds like a, you know common sense, but、uh, when we're going back to the previous, I said the discourse about the fall and fragrance. This is important. We remember our odor perception is ambiguous and individualized, determined by the molecular you know nature of odor chemicals and also our own. Neural patterns of the olfactory brain. So this irrational nature explains why smell is so devalued as something negligible in Enlightenment thinking. But I think the very same attribute also opens up possibilities towards a postmodern, non-anthropocentric thinking or rethinking of smell, as well as its slippery positioning in social structures. Um, yeah, that's the first principle,、um, and then the second principle appears to be contrary to the first one. That is, the sense of smell is also commands a powerful discriminating capacity, because one of the primitive functions of smelling is to judge good or bad food. So then, at the social level, this feature also accounts for many stereotypes, as I just said about race, class, gender, morality. In olfactory terms.、Um, all right. Then,、uh, when we talk about the third uh, attribute, um, it's another like a twist. But our noses, I think, are not stubborn at all. Although it's so you know discriminatory, but it's not stubborn. 
social uh, yeah, neuroscientists the, through you know experimentation and uh, and scientific methods already demonstrated that our olfactory neural system is actually very flexible or plastic. They know very well how to read chemical information contingent on te- contexts, on experiences, memories, and the learning. So this is the third principle of um, the olfactory grammar. Then uh, the last one is something we constantly forget. That is, smell is airborne. It penetrates spaces and it communicates between our internal and external worlds. Uh, Most people, I think, came to realize this more vividly during the COVID pandemic, right? When we wanted to shut the transmission of virus, we had to restrict the uses of our nose. We wear face masks, then we had all these Zoom meetings. Zoom meetings are safe, but we always feel there's something missing. So because they are odorless and they are bland and because that because of that we lose connection to the physicality of things. So smell really gives life to things, I think, and also making all these material entanglements. Yeah, so that's the four principles I summarized. This is not my original research, I summarized <laughs> from the scientific uh, literature. There's so much from those principles um, that a historian, you know, as you said, if a historian read those books, which, yes, you're right, we don't usually read that kind of material, um, but clearly there's so much that can be drawn from that. Um, So reading that section of the book, I really kind of wondered if you're then taking this rich information and concepts how could you possibly sort of choose which examples to look at that for, for Chinese history? I mean, really for anywhere, anytime history, that would be a tricky decision of like, well, what do you do with that? How can you possibly narrow it down um, to into something kind of that one can get one's hands around? So can you tell us briefly what the four episodes are that you've chosen to look at in the book and how you decided to look at these? Yeah, great question. And uh, it's funny, whenever I give a talk, you know, especially at the beginning of this project, and I almost inevitably, I got a a reaction first is what? You write a book about smell? How can you find the materials? And when I started to explain a little bit, and people said, okay, then the next question, how can you narrow down? (laughs) Because smells are basically everywhere. It can, you know, be associated with Every all dimensions, many dimensions of uh, of history and society, culture. So, how did I uh, decided on the four episodes? So the first two episodes are really simple, actually, because as I said, uh, I uh, my original inspiration is from Alan Corbin. So initially, I, I envisioned a Chinese olfactory revolution happening in the 19th and 20th century. And the first two episodes are easy to decide on because that olfactory revolution, first we have to have, we have, to have the environmental deodorization because it's almost unavoidable as a point of departure for any modern history of smell. And then the capitalist, the commodity culture of perfume is also another almost inevitable topic so that's the first book, you know, on the modern Chinese history of smell. 
I think these themes should be explored. And also, you know, they really fundamentally influenced our perception of environment and of our own bodies. And then the next two episodes are more like growing on their own. Um, You know, if my initial blueprint was guided by a sort of teleological vision, and then smells are really strangers indeed, they disturb you. And uh, they beg your attention from unexpected places. So when I, you know, leaf through my materials and read, and sometimes, you know, it's just even sometimes by coincidence, I came across things. Then the final two episodes came up. So the third theme is the literary representations of sexual odor in 1920s China. And the fourth is the stenches in communist propaganda. That both sounds like a strange tales, right? Um, as you know, bodily odors and stenches are the kind of archivillains of olfactory modernity. But they emerged as a cultural and a political expression in China's modern history for some particular reasons. And then also, you know, stenches in communist propaganda. That, that is something very anti-modern, anti-modernity, anti-history, if you like. So, yeah, these are just, uh, they just uh, emerged as they, they really wanted to bag me, to bag my attention. So, yeah, <laughs> we will go back to these themes later in more detail. Mm. No, I'm, I'm definitely going to ask you about each of those. Um moving as you've just done sort of chronologically through the time period. So if we go to the height of the Qing Empire, how did the Chinese universe of odors operate at this point? Yeah, before you know, I explore these four episodes, I offered a kind of brief prehistory in the first part of my book, and then the hygiene uh, is the focus of the first chapter. I used the canonical novel, The Dream of the Red Chamber, as a case study to to try to you know shed some light on a highly sophisticated culture of perfume or incense in late imperial China. Um, this material culture is so closely intertwined with the spiritual, philosophical, and social subtexts. Um, it's like in this novel, different locations, occasions, and seasons are all perfumed with different scents that match various symbolic meanings. For example, the matriarch of the family, Grandma Jia, you know, her sitting room is perfumed with pine and cedar incense. Why pine and cedar incense, not a, like a peach blossoms or other incenses? Because pine and cedar carries the meaning of longevity and uh, nobility, and that perfectly matches her status and age. So Cao Xueqing, the author, is really, he, he, he pays attention to every detail of that culture. Um, but then that's just the material cultural part. But I also wanted to um, emphasize that uh, smells actually broadly, I think, smells help to keep a particular order of things in the late imperial um, Chinese culture. You know, these orders of things, including like time, space, gender, class, sexuality, morality, 
but then they also elevate the everyday into an ascetic way of living. This is very different from the dominant views in modern, modern, modern West, as we all know. Kant famously excludes the sense of smell from his conceptualization of aesthetics. But, but uh, you know, if we look at uh, the dream of Red Chamber, we find that you no know, Cao Xueqing definitely disagree with that. Smell, scents are definitely part of the part of aesthetic experience, you know. But then, on the other hand, I think Cao Xueqing also suggests that others have the capacity to disturb the order of things. So he basically weaves a, like a, an allegory about contamination as an inevitable human condition through smell the stranger. And of course, this is related to the Buddhist undertone of the book. So like this side of the story actually wasn't my initial plan. But uh, again, when I really you know, look deeply into those materials, I, 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 I'm very glad I was guided by my inner nose, not only by my intellectual brain, you know, the rational brain. Yeah, so that's about the chapter one, the dream of the rat chamber, or aroma of the rat chamber. No, that, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for taking us through that. And of course, the point as well about, about what is the role of smell in a society and its conception of kind of what counts and what doesn't and what is experienced and noticed. Um, because that comes up as we move further through the book. You document a number of examples of 19th century Western travelers going to China. And I think the interesting thing is not that they're noticing odors and smells, um, not even necessarily that they're commenting on odors or smells, but that they're commenting on them in a really consistently negative way, not in a, oh, this thing happened, or, oh, this happened, or I experienced this and it's different from home, but in a really quite negative fashion. Why do you think um, the comments were so consistently in this kind of vein? Yeah, that's my chapter to uh, sort of, you know, pick up the, the, the Cao Xueqing's suggestion about uh, contamination as uh, inevitable, philosophically inevitable, right? But uh, the 19th century Western travelers, they, 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 they twisted this discourse and uh, saying that, no, contamination is not inevitable. Contamination means backwardness. So, you know, the 19th century travel writings has long been studied through the lens of Orientalism, which is nothing particularly new. But I think male odor or smell actually provides some, uh, something like a different lens. Yeah, sorry, we again need to use the visual, you know, visual matter for it's so embedded in our, our, our culture. But, uh, but anyway, I think you know, Mal- Maloda is definitely an important character in their travel dramas and uh, has been overlooked. It, you know, what kind of Maloda probably you can imagine. Dried fish, that is part of the Chinese cuisine, opium and and also about ill-paved streets, open ditches, and unhygienic bodies, and this list can go on and on. Um, certainly, negative stereotypes created through the Orientalist lens are nothing too surprising, but a smell may reveal some deeper psychological mechanism. That's what I hope to do in 
this chapter. So then, uh, my my argumentation I starts with this question. So are these smells entirely foreign to the Victorian travelers? The answer is probably not, and I I think it's certainly not, because as you know, London, Paris, New York, all these industrializing Western um, cities didn't smell good either during the same time period. We have you know a wealth of documents to prove that. So and here, I think Chinese stenches are awkward strangers because the strangers, I said, they are you know neither nor exactly because these smells reminded them of home and themselves. But this is a side of themselves they don't really want to acknowledge. So my argument is that they developed this China stinks narrative in order to dispel the uneasy feeling of encountering the strangers. In other words, they decided to use their pen to transform this ambivalent stranger into a definitive other. And for that purpose, they displayed remarkable skills in rhetoric using you know, hyperbole, sarcasm, sensationalism, and many other tactics to portray the Orient and also the Orient smells from for their domestic uh, readers. And uh, then we all know this discourse um, had a huge impact on Chinese history, even you know, today when like, uh, uh, the, today's political discourse still always refers back to China's century of hu- humiliation. Yeah, I think this kind mm. of you know, very bodily discourse, they are really so, so influential mm-hmm. and so deeply embedded. No, absolutely. Um, and it, I think, goes back not just to that discourse of Western views of China, um, but also the discourse you mentioned at the beginning about kind of deodorizing um, and this being linked to modernity, to development in China and also in the West. Um, and kind of we see here, I think, the the joining of these discourses and narratives. So can I ask you to tell us a bit more about that directly? Um when did we start to see kind of deodorizing China initiatives and who were they coming from? And what did this have to do with kind of development of China more broadly? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, deodorization was certainly not a, a new concept in China. According to traditional Chinese medicine, miasmas are identified as a key agent causing epidemic diseases. These are nothing new. And it's also very similar to the uh, miasma theory in early modern Europe. But then the difference is that traditional Chinese medical thinking normally focuses on preventions for individuals. And then modern Europe, we know they developed the ideas of public health and uh, using you know, sanitary engineering to achieve the, the goal of public health. So when China opened the treaty ports for foreign trade and residence after the Opium War, these cities were at the forefront of urbanization and modernization in Western style. Trade and industrial development then increased the urban population, causing sanitary and environmental crisis, especially because you know these cities were certainly not designed for the scale of urbanization. And also, new practices in urban planning 
I mean, the Western style new practices in urban planning also changed traditional ecosystems. Um, I, I discuss, discuss the case of Shanghai's waterways and waste treatment um, in my book. So basically in the past, the waste treatment, like there is a cycle between the urban uh, night soil, you know, then used uh, to transport it to the countryside and then become the fertilizer. And uh, so this maintains uh, a cycle of ecosystem. But that ecosystem was um, broken. Examples like this really shows that uh, the conventional narrative about deodorization and sanitary campaigns in Western colonies, they always tend to emphasize the inherent local problems, right? You know, people don't know about hygiene, sanitation, and so on and so forth. But they always obscure the other side of the story, or this side of the story, that is the modern odorization actually preceded the deodorization campaigns. And uh, the balance of an ecosystem was broken in, you know, the first place. Actually, this is not only about uh, those colonies. It's also about, you know, in, 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 the, in industrializing uh, European cities. It's the same. So, um, yeah, then because the narrative about deodorization, modernity and the progress has been so powerful and because of at its core is the ideology of development, which was embraced by completely different schools of political actors in modern China. So in my chapter, I traced three case studies of deodorization, um, yeah, separately led by the British colonial administrations in the late 19th century and then by the Chinese Confucian scholars also in the late 19th century, early 20th century, but also by communist cultures. We can see, you know, each group, they apply the different methods and uh, technologies, but they shared the developmental vision. And also, um, yeah, this vision embodied, embodied literally, I would say, embodied by a deodorized and sanitized environment. But I, my research, I really would like to show that uh, actually the outcome of deodorization was not necessarily purity, but an uneven redistribution of smellscapes alongside uh, capital and uh, symbolic capital. And each school of those political characters, they have their own agenda. So it's a, oh, they have their own way of redistribution, sandscapes. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that's my story of deodorization in China. It's always good when history is more complicated than it might seem at the beginning. So thank you for taking us through that one that I think could easily fall into a trap of here's what happened. And it's very helpful to be like, well, actually, who's involved here? What are they trying to do? To what extent do they get what they want? You know, it's more complicated than that. Um, And in that answer, I think a really helpful part of the complication that you highlighted are the different actors and the different goals. Could I ask us to kind of add in another thing that complicates this picture, Um, more on the technological side, specifically the introduction of synthetic fragrances? How did this influence conceptions and practices of odor in China? Yes, synthetic fragrances are very interesting topic 
especially the, our 21st century everyday <laughs> life is full mm -hmm. of first it's full of synthetic smells without we even being aware of it and second that everything organic is good this is kind of you know the fashion and uh, part of the global urban middle class sensibility I would say so that's uh, that's that's uh, you know initially when I saw those materials historical materials about synthetic fragrance and I said wow that's very different a century ago um, yeah, as you probably know artificial scents were developed in the late 19th century and then began to be widely used by the beauty industry in the early 20th century when they were introduced to the Chinese noses surprisingly or not so surprisingly they were received favorably you would imagine you know okay synthetic smells are they smell good or not I, i'm not sure but uh, you would uh, imagine there is some kind of resistance there but uh, the truth is that uh, probably not even you know some authors historical authors they even claimed that the artificial scents are far superior than natural floral scents used in traditional chinese beauty products so yeah these days certainly most people would uh, probably disagree Mm, so then my question is, why did the, the Chinese nurses feel that way? Um, I think we need to understand the bigger picture here. So in this whole chapter, I try to piece together this picture um, on reperfuming China. And uh, the key storyline is that uh, I ask the question, and how the colonial capitalist force tuned the olfactory neurons turning manufactured smells, including artificial smells, right? Uh, and actually, they are literal strangers. <laughs> um, so how they turn these literal strangers into friends. Um, then we know that the 19th century saw the first development of modern beauty industry in Western Europe and North America through the chemical processes and the global trade. Um, those Capitalists, they seem to know so well about uh, the olfactory neurons are fast learners. So physically, they built uh, an extensive trading network in China, selling cosmetics in pharmacies, department stores, and even village vendors' carts. But more importantly, they used newspaper advertising, billboards, posters, and other memes, you know, including all these visual and, uh, and, uh, and uh, other senses to spread the idea of an ideal modern body and sense. So during this process, neurons are rewired through physical contact of new odors and uh, also through education of the mind. And the favorable reception of synthetic smells, I think, was part of uh, an outcome of, this, of these efforts. This is also a great example to show the flexibility of the olfactory system. They are not stubborn. They really, they, you know, they can adapt sometimes the ideology, you know, certain, certain uh, particular neural wiring can really, you know, make uh, perceptions different. Yeah, so that's uh, the, the story about uh, synthetic uh, fragrance and uh, their circulation in China. Mm, fascinating story. Um, moving to another part of your book, um, I suppose the next few questions are focusing on kind of different actors um, and their 
roles and thoughts in the story you've been telling us. So going with the earlier one first, um, can you help us understand what the writers and activists of the May 4th movement, how did they conceptualize, discuss, smell? And what does this tell us about kind of when this was all happening, given what else was going on in China's history? Yeah, this is uh, uh, for me. Yeah, these materials are fascinating. You know, but we all know literature provides a very rich source for studying smell. We already have a few books, and the recent one is about nineteenth-century uh, French literature. I think and smells in in that literature. So, so going back to China, the May Fourth literature. Um, is certainly very much in the canon of uh, modern Chinese literature, um, because these you know young writers they attempted to modernize Chinese literature, breaking away from what they called the shackles of uh, the Confucian past. This is all very well known story, um, but uh, probably you know um, we 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 constantly forget smell because it's just as I said uh, it's. Uh, it's just everywhere. So, but when you focus on smell, I realized that smell was also enlisted as a tool to express their longing for emancipation, you know, for getting away from Confucianism. So I only focus on one type of smell, that is the bodily, sexual, or libidinal odor. I'm sure there are many other smells. When I give talk, I always you know, get examples from audiences. But uh, here, I only focus on this uh, most uh, kind of uh, kind of uh, strange smells because I said it's strange because this is exactly the kind of smell um, modern Europe wanted to suppress, wanted to get rid of because they are so quintessentially primitive or even animalistic, something our modern bodies should not be associated with. So then we apply perfume and we shower a lot. So this is a familiar story. But uh, exactly against this background, then you can understand how I, how astonished when I uh, when I found that some modern Chinese writers, especially the May Fourth writers, were so into the smell of body and uh, sexuality, um, to give you an example, for example, a young man uh, in the uh, Zhang Ziping's short story, uh, this young man is sexually aroused by his lover's breath, and then uh, he used the word "the breath smells like." Uh, a weak type of beast, <laughs> probably we wouldn't to use this kind of metaphor. You know, it is the scientific mes- metaphor of the lover's breath. And then in Mao Dun's, many, many of Mao Dun's novels, those revolutionary women are always hypersensual beings. They always exude like a warm aroma of flesh. In Chinese, it's called, you know, you know, the smell of flesh. That is definitely something we, we, I mean, as for our 21st century sensibility, I found it is very interesting in their own ways. There are many such examples that portray sexuality through women's, occasionally men's, biological smells. And uh, but we know in traditional erotic literature, it's inevitably musk and orchid. It's like the most uh, formulaic symbols of sexual odor. 
Um, so this fascination, I think we cannot explain it within the framework of Western olfactory modernity. And through my close reading, I argue that the Chinese modernists discovered in the primitive sense of smell the true essence of being human. And this is a gesture of defiance against Confucian culture. And also embedded in their pursuit was the dilemma of modernity and also the, the, the kind of, you know, the porous boundary between purity and uh, contamination, between the fall and uh, fragrance. So again, we go back to the stranger concept, right? Mm. And mm-hmm. that's my, my, my story uh, about my fourth writer. Mm. And picking up the threads we've already discussed, right, which I think is such a strength of the episodes you've chosen, that they're distinct, but also kind of keep going back to these bigger themes. Um, All right. I'd like to ask you now about Maoist propaganda. And I know I'm not meant to pick favorites between case studies or episodes or anything like that. But I have to admit, this one really captured my imagination. Oh, really? Um, (laughs) I mean, I think it's really, we know so much about Maoist propaganda, and yet there's still so much more to kind of investigate and go, hang on a second, what was actually being said? So... (laughs) Can you walk us through the role that olfactory language played in Maoist propaganda? Yeah, I um, yeah, I wrote this chapter. Initially, I wasn't thinking of writing. I was thinking about writing the politics of of smell, but uh, but again, this is definitely the materials led my my nose. They guided my nose when I found it. there are so many, so many stenches in Maoist uh, propaganda. So I think, you know, and if we you know, go back to the previous chapter about May 4th literature and uh, the capitalist perfume revolution, are both centered on the private body, right? The private body of, of those individuals. And then the communist politics in the Mao era, you know, feel like uh, um, they took more interest in the collective body of the Chinese. So, and then smell plays a, a key role here to create this collective sensibility. And then it's also about uh, about being utilized for particular propaganda purposes. So, um, in the lexicon of Mao era politics, we know that class enemies are dog shit, and then labor camps are cow sheds. And then a method to castigate landowners, you know, those capitalists, class enemies, is to make them stink. I coined a, a, a neologism, I call them stinken. So because in Chinese it's the docho, it's a verb, it's, it's one verb. So it is make them stink, is to stinken them. And then the bourgeois, you know, when we when they talk about the bourgeois fragrant fragrant breeze, then they said that you have to perceive that as stinking air. So you can already see that you know the education of the neurons. This is a part of my key, uh, also a key argument. You know, I wanted to show the flexibility of the neurons, but they can be manipulated. So these, you know are just some examples to give you a taste or a sniff of the political atmosphere of the time. 
And uh, again, I think a mouse propaganda machine seems to intuitively understand well smell's capacity in evoking emotions and uh, in making judgments in, you know, the discriminate, right? And uh, then I think the, the, the success of mouse propaganda is that it successfully bridged the biological and the social functioning of smell and other senses, I think. Um, so in this chapter, I used the keywords approach to analyze a large quantity of party documents, mouse own writings, and uh, other propaganda materials. And these keywords match, you know, interestingly matches the emotional states of, for example, paranoia, rudeness, ruthlessness, and uh, love-hate. All these are probably necessary ingredients of communist propaganda. Um, yeah, and, uh, and uh, you know, I at the end of this chapter, I also discussed that, like, uh, modern science has shown that if you associate somebody with stink repeatedly, then the neurons will be rewired to form a negative assessment of this person. So I I apply some wild imagination. I think if we were able to conduct a brain scan of the Chinese masses at that time who were bombarded by smelly propaganda, and I wonder whether we might see changing neural activities. That's uh, just a wild imagination. We can't do this kind of scientific research. Mm. Uh, maybe leave that to the future. AI <laughs> might be able to do that for us. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> yeah, so that's the Maoist art of uh, political struggle through mm-hmm. smelling. No, very interesting um, possibility built on some very interesting research. So thank you for taking us through that final episode of the book. However, I do have one final question, if you don't mind. Um, The book is obviously out, it's done, it's off your desk. Is there anything you might be working on now or next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's about sense that you'd like to highlight or preview for us? Yeah, sure. Um, Angela, I haven't officially started a new project, but uh, I've been thinking a lot about uh, atmosphere. Ambience, survive, you know, all these, another invisible thing. I like, uh, I like uh, researching invisible stuff. Um, uh, atmosphere, ambience, certainly they are related to smell, but uh, I think they, uh, yeah, it's certainly broader than smell. That might be the topic of my next book, because I think in this uh, AI era, you know, I think it becomes more important to understand these non-data-driven, non-data-based phenomena. AI can certainly, you know, analyze data through 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 the uh, zero one zero one world, but uh, in terms of all these, you know, highly humanly experiences it's uh, it's a different sphere right so yeah that's a very you know initial thought i haven't really seriously uh, started to do any uh, primary source research i have some stories in mind i have some like films artworks in mind but uh, yeah, i haven't uh, systematically uh, studied them um, so this is one one project. Then, mm-hmm. apart from that, I I still wanted to stick to the 
smell topic because I, I'm really very keen to do some public engagement projects about smell. If possible, one thing I really want to do is to create a smell archive. <laughs> Sounds very ambitious, right? Um, but uh, yeah, we do already have some smell archives, but uh, not a not like a like a something for the wide public. So I, I I want to do that. For example, I'm really curious about the smell of opium. You know, opium is such a fraught imagery in modern Chinese history, in global history, if you know, we can even say that. But uh, it's not easy these days to get hold of that and get hold of that smell. So, yeah, I think if there if there was a smell museum, so I can just visit it and take a sniff and uh, probably this kind of embodied experience, you know, nose-on approach can bring a smell historian or historian some other perspectives and uh, other dimensions of thinking. I don't know. So this is... Uh, it's certainly a long shot. I'm not sure whether I will be eventually <laughs> able to do that, but uh, that's uh, that's kind of a dream for me. I hope mm. one day we will be able to visit uh, the Smell Archive, Smell Museum. Yeah. Well, that would be very cool. Um, but while it doesn't exist yet, we do, of course, have the book that we can learn some things from, even if we can't smell directly the things you're describing. The book is titled Sense of China, A Modern History of Smell, published by Cambridge University Press. Shuele, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you so much. And uh, it is uh, absolutely a pleasure to you know, talk about these smells and uh, guiding you through uh, uh, an olfactory journey. And uh, thank you so much for having me. <laughs>